discuss female-driven films through an inclusive feminist lens with the help of the 1988 film Heathers. Paid and Puke is hosted by Jessica Baxter, Amy Green, and Christina Barr. It's also a spoiler-filled free-for-all. You've been warned. And on today's episode, we're discussing the 1996 romantic comedy The Truth About Cats and Dogs, starring Janine Garofalo and Uma Thurman, written by Audrey Wells and directed by someone you may have heard of, because he also made Heathers, Michael Lehman. This 90s take on Cyrano de Bergerac tells the story of Abby, Janine Garofalo, the veterinarian host of the titular radio show who becomes romantically entangled with a caller, sight unseen. Self-conscious about her looks, she enlists model-slash-aspiring newscaster Noelle Thurman to impersonate her. Don't touch that dial. It's Dr. Abby Barnes with the truth about cats and dogs, and you're on the air. I have a cat, and he licked up and down my face, and now I got this rash. How long did this tongue bath last? About three hours. Okay, this is a good time to talk about limits. You can love your pets, but just don't love your pets. Abby was the kind of woman who knew exactly what she wanted. Three years, no sex. One can survive, you know, this is the electronic age. Noelle was exactly the kind of woman. You know, you burp and guys think it's adorable, you puke and they line up to hold your hair back. Every man wanted. (laughs) Then one day, Abby got a call. Well, I got a dog here that's wearing roller skates. Gave a little advice. Get down on all fours. You're going to have to approach him in a submissive position. And told a little lie. I'm five foot ten, blonde, hard to miss. Okay, I'll see you there. Um, you have to help me. I just want you to be me when he comes in here, okay? Brian, right? Yeah, hi, Abby. Yeah, this is my friend, Madonna, Donna. You sound completely different on the air. You should hear me in the shower. Brian doesn't know it. I really like this woman. You just met her. I know, but you know when you speak to someone, you just feel it. But the woman with the voice he loves. Hello? What would you say to having a bath? You don't strike me as the shy type. He's probably jealous. (laughs) And the face he adores. Mm. You have to admit you're not the same person you were on the phone last night. Is more than one woman. Our turtle's sick. Can you help us out? He's got pneumonia. All you have to do is grab the turtle's leg, poke him in the butt with your finger. You want me to stick my finger on the turtle's leg? 20th Century Fox presents. She is all that and a bag of chips. Uma Thurman. He's got this small personal habit that just drives me crazy. What's that? He loves you. Janine Garofalo. You love Abby because she's so beautiful. Yes, she is, but that's not why I love her. The truth is, you would not be so enamored with Abby if she looked like. If, uh. I love Abby. It doesn't matter what she looks like. And Ben Chaplin. Where's Abby? She's not here. I just heard her voice. I know she's here. She's not here. Here. She's in the bathroom taking a bath. The truth about cats and dogs. It's Brian. He wants to talk to you. Tell him to come back in half an hour. I don't think he can be dissuaded. Tell him if he doesn't come back in half an hour, I will call the whole thing off. You're the boss. Joining us to delve into this most 90s of rom-coms is the director in question, Michael Lehman. Michael, welcome to Paid and Puke. 
Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get involved in this project? Well, the producer of the movie, her name is Carrie Esta Albert, was a friend of mine, and she's an excellent producer, and I had some dealings with her over the years. She came to me with the script and said that Audrey had written it and, and she thought I'd like it, and I knew Audrey as a child. Oh. Um, <laughs> but she, she had a different last name because Audrey Wells was her writing name, and I didn't figure this out. I don't think I figured it out until I got the script and met with her, <laughs> which was kind of fun and funny. I thought the script, you know, this is clearly a take on Cyrano de Bergerac. It was pretty simple in that regard, but the feminist point of view on it, it had really good female characters. It had a whole different perspective on the rom-com because it was a story told from a woman's point of view in a different way than, than was typical in the rom-com at the time. And I had worked with Janine on uh, Larry Sanders' show and a couple other things. So I remember reading the script and saying, I would make this movie, it would be perfect for Janine Garofalo. And Carrie Esta said, oh, that's what we think. We're totally in agreement. I said, I don't know if we can get the movie made with her because she wasn't a star, you know, she wasn't a movie star. I just really liked Audrey's writing. Audrey was a really terrific writer. She wrote great dialogue. She wrote really good characters. She had a very, very strong point of view. And so I took a meeting with them, and the movie was set up at New Line Pictures. Ultimately, they didn't make it. And I had to actually fight to get the job, which was kind of interesting. Oh. Bob Shea, who ran New Line, was a good guy. He was a director. New Line started off releasing John Waters movies. I mean, it was <laughs> before it became the place where all these pretty good genre horror pictures were made. It was a really kind of fringy indie distributor. And Bob met with me, and he said... Yeah, you know, I think you're a good director. I like Heather's, like some of the stuff you've done, but I don't really see you as this kind of director. This is a rom-com, you know, this is a, a very different kind of movie. I said, no, this is right down my alley. And I, I really had to convince them to hire me. And then of course they put the movie in turnaround and it got made at a different studio. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot more to it, but that's in a nutshell how it, how it got initiated. I really don't know if they'd gone to other directors or what the history of the project was before I got involved. I think it was just in development at New Line. So they knew they wanted someone, but they weren't sure about you. <laughs> right. They thought I was too dark. They thought I wasn't oh. really a romantic comedy guy. They <laughs> thought that it was not my sort of thing. Well, we were also wondering about the casting. So you told us about how you got Janine Garofalo on board, but how about Uma Thurman and everyone else? So Janine, I really really wanted to do it with her. And Janine's very special. You know, there's really nobody else like her. And I remember saying, right when I first read the script, I wanted her involved, but there was no guarantee that we could actually get her, you know, that mm -hmm. we could get her interested. If I remember right, when we were at New Line, they said, okay, we'll maybe make it with Janine Garofalo, but you have to get a star in there to play the role of Noel. And Pulp Fiction had come out. So... Uma had a pretty good profile. She, she <laughs> yeah. wasn't a major movie star, but yeah. she was pretty well known. And I thought, well, that's a good combination because physically the two of them are so different. You know, Uma <laughs> was a tall blonde and looked beautiful in a conventional sense. And I, I actually think Janine is very beautiful, but she was not the conventional Hollywood beauty, mm -hmm. at least didn't project that kind of image. So I thought that was a good combination. And I remember this was a big issue for New Line because even though Uma was well known, I think they still were uncomfortable making a movie that starred Janine. Mm. I can't remember who they wanted. 
and they may never have been able to say who they wanted. <laughs> and, you know, we thought, okay, we've got Uma. This should be a slam dunk. Yeah. A guy named Mike DeLuca, he worked under Bob Shea. He's still around. He's a producer, done tons of stuff. He said, I don't think we're going to make it with this cast. You know, maybe if you get a guy to play the role that Ben Chaplin played, the male lead, they said, maybe if you get a guy who means something. And and our response was, that is the girl part in this movie. We're not <laughs> right. going to get Male movie stars won't do that, right? You yeah. Know, Tom Cruise isn't going to play the girl in the movie. <laughs> and so I can't remember if we started looking for the guy first. The process of getting a movie made is so fucking complicated <laughs> filled with nonsense but finally DeLuca said to us I'll let you put it in turnaround and I had a deal at Fox and had made a movie there and there was an executive named Susan Cartsonis who was super smart and really good and she knew the script and she knew who Audrey was Carrie Esta took it to Susan Cartsonis and said would you guys make this movie with Janine Garofalo and Uma Thurman, and it turned out that they were big fans of Janine's at Fox. Oh. So in the course of a weekend, we went from one studio to the other. It was some sort of a three-day holiday weekend, and we sent them the script on the Friday, and we were taking a meeting on the Monday holiday, and by Tuesday, the movie was set up at Fox. Wow. So wow, that's then, yeah, that was great. It was, I mean, it was mostly great. It, it got complicated because of rewrite issues, which is just really? interesting Hollywood nonsense because Audrey was very, very self-assured, you know, supremely confident, really smart. And we went into a meeting at Fox and they basically said, well, we want to do some rewrites. And she said, I'm not rewriting this. It's perfect. <laughs> and, and we left the meeting and, and I said, Audrey, I think you just talked yourself out of a job. Oh. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, this studio just took on a movie that they didn't develop. And there's no executive in Hollywood who will take on a movie and say, I'm not gonna make a change in it. Mm. You know, everybody has to piss on it as they say. And so, <laughs> you know, I was like, let's see what their notes are. And anyway, that's a different complication. We can talk about that later. But for casting, Fox didn't say, you need to have a male movie star in the guy part. Then we went through a very long process of auditions to try to find somebody who was good and ideally somebody that people knew or wanted to see who was willing to play the part. And we ended up with this British actor, Ben Chaplin, who nobody knew, but I thought he was great. Yeah. Yeah, he is really perfect I, in that. I love yeah. Brian. I love that he was just so earnest and the character wasn't totally superficial. And I mean, both Noelle and Abby kind of fall for him. And I really liked him. And I saw this movie in the theater in high school. And I've, I've seen it so many times. We all watched it together on Monday and it was wild how much of the dialogue I could remember. But I loved that love interest and I thought he was very authentic. And in the end, like he loves her for who she is, you know? And yeah. like that is like a very pure thing and it made an impression on me yeah. when I was a teenager and yeah, saw good. it. I mean it is yeah. exactly what you're saying is a subversion of the typical female in that role that is sweet and cute and generally non-problematic <laughs> and supportive right. and <laughs> And maybe a little dumb so that the plot can right. actually like work. Not always the sharpest. <laughs> yeah, like really dumb, really super dumb. But, uh, you know, it was really hard to cast that. We auditioned a bunch of people. And guy actors are problems, you know? <laughs> I always think it's that any man who decides they want to become an actor 
you're already loaded down with lots of problems. You know, <laughs> most guys, you know, they want to play sports or whatever they want to do or make money or whatever it is that is a typical male pursuit. And so if you, in high school, you say, I want to be an actor, you're either gay, which is not a problem, but it, it defines you in a certain way, maybe, or you're a weirdo or you're a tremendously awful narcissist. <laughs> and, um, and that sums up most actors anyway. You know, yeah. so um, <laughs> trying to find somebody that would be sympathetic in that role was really tricky. <laughs> Did you see any people and, that later became famous that you turned down? Yeah, I mean, you always do that. I mean, that is typical. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where, especially younger actors who haven't yet hit, and you say, yeah, they're they're okay, but I don't know. And, and then it turns out like five years later, they're massive movie stars. <laughs> and you think, oh, shit, I wish I'd known that. But of course, they had to make movies like the one you were doing that they didn't want to do in order to become those movie stars. So it's kind of meaningless. But like, I remember we read Matthew McConaughey came oh, wow. in and auditioned. And he had done Dazed and Confused. So he wasn't completely unknown, but he had no profile. Didn't mean anything getting the movie made and i i remember him because i remember his audition was really pretty good very good but the vibe from him didn't seem right for the part mm. yeah he felt very texas and a little <laughs> yeah. knowing he wasn't sweet enough naturally yeah. right yeah there's uh, a yeah. certain yeah. he's got a lot of swagger kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. Like, that's sort of built into who he is and also like you know there's a point in the movie where the lie just keeps going and you feel really bad for Brian yeah because he's like obviously really genuinely in love with right. Abby well and um, I like like he's genuinely confused how sometimes she acts completely different and you know, yeah that. yeah the other actor who came in who was really good who almost got the part was Patrick Dempsey Oh, oh. Uh, but he was in a funny point in his career because when he first showed up on the scene he was very young he starred in two or three movies that did pretty well. I don't know if people remember this. Can't so much, buy me he, Oh, yeah, totally. He yeah. was like the nerd, right. <laughs> the charming he was nerd. A charming nerd. <laughs> and I thought he was really good. And he actually screen tested, and his screen test was really good. There was nothing wrong with him at all, but we had a harder time getting the studio to sign off on him at that point. I don't think they said they wouldn't make the movie with him, but he was in that weird in-between stage in his career where he no longer was really carrying movies as a lead, and he, I think he was a few years away from Grey's Anatomy, which made him a, obviously a massive star in the television world. But he did really well. And then, I can't remember, we saw all these young guys that went on to have careers. So it is always funny. I mean, the people who read for Heathers, they come out of the woodwork all the time. People say, you know, I auditioned for you. And I go, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> they say, loved yeah, Daniel's you, Brad Pitt story so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, about Brad Pitt saying yes. that yeah. was brilliant for what it's worth. That yeah, was funny. Yeah, the Brad Pitt story. I went to meet Brad Pitt to try to get him to do another movie that Dan had written. And I thought, well, you should meet Dan Waters because he is the funniest person you'll ever meet. And uh, he goes, oh, no, I met him. I go, oh, really? Where did you meet him? He goes, I met you too. I said, no, you didn't meet me. <laughs> he told us that he was the one who did that. <laughs> I ran home. He turned us down for that movie. but <laughs> And very intelligently, by the way, because he didn't think that that character, the main character in that script, was proactive enough. It was the world mm. revolved around him, but he didn't mm. do that much. And I thought that was very interesting coming from an actor to say, I don't want to be the guy in the middle of the storm 
I want to be the guy who's either fighting the storm or making the storm. Uh, mm. But I ran home and pulled out this cassette tape <laughs> of, the, of our table read. It was like, fuck, I'm, I'm introducing everybody. And I go, and uh, Brad is playing JD. <laughs> I I have no idea what this kid is. Brad, no last name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it was uh, Matthew Perry, you know, from Friends. Yeah. I worked with him on a TV show. He's a very nice guy. And he goes, yeah, you know, I auditioned for you. I go, no, I don't think you did. He goes, yes, I did. I wanted to be in Heathers really badly. Oh, yeah. I I didn't know who you were. You know, he wasn't anybody then. So, I mean, no, but one, for could Truth have, no one could have been dogs, better than Christian Slater. He was perfect. <laughs> he was perfect. Yeah. He was. Good. He was really great. And you know, the whole process of casting is complicated because <laughs> you know you get good actors who come in and do a really good audition, and you don't want to cast them because it just doesn't feel right, or you can't cast them because of something that has nothing to do with them. I mean, I have so much sympathy for what poor actors have to go through and putting themselves out there, yeah, and being rejected because. Generally speaking, only one person plays the role. (laughs) (laughs) We noticed a lot of Mr. Show people involved. We recognized David Cross and Mary Lynn Rayskup as the callers. And then we saw Bob in the credits at the end and we're like, what? What? And we went back to the bookstore scene and had to spot him. So we were really interested in how all the Mr. Show folks came involved. Well, so Janine was close with them, you know, because Bob and maybe David Cross, too, were on the Ben Stiller show. These guys were the sort of very hip, very, very talented young comedians that hung out together and were coming up in L.A. at the time. And I'd worked with Bob on the Larry Sanders show because he played Larry's agent. And I remember doing some scenes with him and I thought he was really good. How long have we been going out? I don't know, three months? Four months. Gee, time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) What do you want out of this relationship? Guess the fun's over. I'm serious. Uh, I don't know. What do you want? I asked you first. Okay, uh, I want it to continue the way that it is, except with more fucking. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that was before Mr. Show. And I had directed a pilot that never went anywhere called Life on Mars. And I think if you root around the internet, you can find it. It was a presentation pilot. It wasn't a full episode. And it was written by Bob. It was created by, but do you guys know about this? Do you know anything about this? I don't know. Okay. So it was an HBO pilot that was, this is a terrible way to describe it, but it makes some sense. It was sort of a hipster Seinfeld. It was a show about nothing. You know, the same way (laughs) Seinfeld was famously about nothing. Yeah. And it took place in a coffee shop, a fictional coffee shop. And Bob Odenkirk was the lead and it was his show. He wrote it. And he was friends with Janine, who played this second lead. And the third character was a guy named, oh, I can't remember his name, but he was a really oddball comedian. And I think they, they originally wanted Andy Dick. I don't know. If, <laughs> does that name mean anything to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to suggest Andy okay. Dick because yeah. he was also in the Ben Stiller show. Yeah, I love right, the right. Ben Stiller show. So they wanted Andy Dick, and for some reason we couldn't get Andy Dick, and we got this other guy. That's who shocking. Some, uh, yeah. Uh, his last name was Plot, Plotkin, Plotnik, something like that. Joey was, Plotnik? I never worked with... No. no. Um, we'll look it up. We'll I don't know. Yeah, look it up. Jack Plotnik. He was really good, and we shot this 20-minute presentation for HBO, and 
when Brad Gray, who was one of the producers, showed it to Michael Fuchs, who ran HBO at the time, the story came back to us that Michael Fuchs watched it and said to Brad Gray, you're fucking with me, right? And he goes, what do you mean? This is a joke, right? This isn't a show. This is a joke. The head of HBO thought that the producer was doing this as an elaborate joke. That shows you how much he did not get it. I thought it was great. I'm sure it was way ahead of its time. I guess so. I mean, Janine was fantastic and Bob was really good. You know, Bob is genius. He's great. So Janine. And and there were a lot of really good people who worked on getting that pilot together. Okay, just going to be here. Look at this. Oh, man, this is so great. Who is he? Oh, he's a genius. He was a rock star in the 70s. He's from New York. He used to hang out with Andy Warhol. The artist with the crazy blonde wig. Jackie O's friend. John F. Kennedy's wife. John Kennedy Jr.'s mother. The guy who goes out with Daryl Hannah. Yeah. Yes! You know, she really hasn't gotten a break. But it never went anywhere. I mean, HBO just said, forget it. We're not going to do this. And I think within about a year, they had Mr. Show up. But, um, yeah, so, so that's how I knew these people. And really what happened was when we shot the radio station interview scene that opens the movie or that, you know, more or less opens the movie, Janine, Janine's very complicated. You have to understand her company, her personal corporation is called something like I Hate Myself Productions. (laughs) Janine carried the whole idea of self-loathing to an extreme. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't an act, you know, very complicated person and uh, an amazing person. But when she showed up on set and we started filming, she immediately said, I don't like being the lead in a movie. I don't want to be the lead in a movie. This isn't right for me. She said, it just feels weird. And I said, Janine, you're playing a radio personality. You know, you're playing a veterinarian's radio show about animals. You need to be upbeat. We need to feel that you're smiling. <laughs> and Janine was like, I'm not going to smile. You, 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 can ask, you can ask me to do anything, but I'm not going to smile. Don't and tell Janine, a woman to smile. <laughs> yes, don't tell a woman to smile. Exactly. But, you know, she had this beautiful smile. And her face would light up when she'd smile. And I said, you're playing a character who has to be a personality on the radio. She goes, I hate radio personalities. (laughs) (laughs) And we were doing the call-ins. And I said, what is going to make you happy in doing these call-ins? She goes, I want my friend David Cross to be the guy on the other end of the phone. (laughs) Now, I said, great. Let's call David and see if he can come in. And I think he came to the studio. He, he might have even called in. I, I can't remember because it was very last minute. And I think we started shooting that day with the script supervisor reading the off-camera lines. <laughs> and Janine freaked out and said, you cannot make me do this. I can't mm-hmm. work off of somebody who's just robotically reading lines. Right. <laughs> so we got David to do it. And, you know, he's amazing. So he did all these voices. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure those are the voices that are in the movie. Yes. Oh, hi. This is Charles from San Pedro. And, um, okay, my question is, I'm worried about my basset hound, uh, Clotilde. She doesn't want to see me. Doesn't want to eat. Well, you know what, Charles? Usually basset hounds don't want to eat what they can't smell. Does she have a cold by any chance? Oh, she is coughing a little bit. Okay. Is it like a dry, wheezing, like, (laughs) type of cough, or is it like a wetter, phlegm-based cough? 
Um, it's like the first one, more like the wheezy one. Okay, can you put her on? The dog on the phone? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> put down. Come here, baby. Come here. Okay. Uh, here she is, doctor. Oh, baby. Yeah, she's got a cold, Charles. You're going to have to take her to the vet. Right now? Right away. Uh, at the time, <laughs> I thought we'll get actors in the loop group to do them so that they're authentic, so it's not a, you know, not like a, a white comedian imitating a black guy kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How long did this tongue bath last? Where this is started one, went two, three, went He's a fur person, Dan. He chases imaginary bugs up the wall. Are you going to do that, too? Imaginary? No. That is a David. color tugger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But David is so, so funny. And what happened was, all of a sudden, Janine came to life. Hmm. Because she, she loved David, and these were her friends, Bob and David. And so her performance changed significantly, and uh, it taught me a lot about what actors need and what she needed in particular. And I think in the bookstore scene, there's an actual scene that was shot leading into that. <laughs> but I think you just see them leaving the bookstore or something. I can't remember how it is in the final. I haven't seen them. They're movie. just in the yeah, background. And then the right at the end, they cross camera and you can see their faces for a split second. <laughs> yes. So yeah. there, there was probably improv dialogue that was done with them in the scene. And it ended up not making it into the final cut of the movie. So is everything in the phone calls that was in the script? Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was exactly as scripted and that David was just doing the script. He augmented, I think, a little bit. Do you guys have any other questions you want to ask about the movie? I don't think so. I have one more, actually, which is the old adage of never work with animals or children. So how was it working with animals <laughs> in this case? It was horrible. Oh. <laughs> the roller skate scene was oh like, God. that must have been intense. Uh, you know, here's the thing. I had done some complicated movies with some very difficult people and difficult production oh. circumstances. And when this came to me, I thought, oh my God, this is so good. It's just a movie about people. It's got female characters that are really well written. It's, you know, got a solid base. It's a rom-com. I'm going to have such a great time doing this movie. I don't think I've ever had a worse time making a movie than doing oh, this wow. one. Which, and I love the movie and I'm really proud of it. And, you know, it's probably pretty dated now. You, you know, rom-coms are very tricky genre. And it's tricky genre for all sorts of reasons, mostly because you have to follow certain conventions to make them work that defy reality and that are hooked into fantasies that people have about romance and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and they're very interesting sexual politics that go on in all rom-coms. But it, it's a genre that appears to be simple. People go, oh, you know, mm. they're formulaic. They're very hard to pull off. And I realized this once I got into this movie, that it had all sorts of perils. But I always thought the animal stuff is going to be tricky. You know, how do you get a dog to roller skate and all that sort of thing? We had an amazing dog, uh, Hank. That dog's <laughs> name was Hank. His trainer was, I think his name was Steve Barons. He had trained the little dog that was in The Mask. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a Hollywood dog trainer. And... First of all, working with animals is always shockingly horrifying because of what the trainers have to do to get the animals to do what they need to do. Mm. And they are very humane. Nobody survives as an animal trainer who's abusing animals, certainly not on set. Yeah. Still, to get animals to repeat actions or do what you want, it takes a long time. And it's 
really frustrating and you can't tell a dog, you know, well, you better get it right this time. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to lose the light, and, dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, is that dogs do not go on roller skates. They can't go on roller skates. Yeah. And this was the days before digital visual effects could be used at all for this sort of right. thing. So it's all practical. We built a thing with four roller skates and a sort of a frame <laughs> that we could put the dog on and then had to hide the frame and we could pull him on it. And then we had another thing where I think there were roller skates on two legs, but then some sort of a bar to pull him on the other legs. Oh, wow. So that stuff was really time consuming and <laughs> tricky. I mean, it worked out pretty well. It looks I, great. I, yeah, I would yeah. never have known it that. Like really <laughs> yeah. Roller skates. yeah. Going into it, I go, yeah, somebody's gonna be able to train a dog to be on roller skates, of course. Yeah. And <laughs> then you get a green light on the movie and every animal trainer you talk to says, no, there, there's no way we can't make that happen. So it's a lot of testing things and trying stuff and doing the right angles. But that was a very lovely dog. We all love that dog. In fact, I was allergic to dogs oh. and I went out and got shots to get over my dog allergy because in making that movie, yeah. I fell in love with that dog so much. Yeah. And they worked? That's great. Yeah, they did. I mean, it took a couple of years. Now I can be around dogs all the time, which is great. But at that point, I could be around dogs, but I have to take the pill to keep from sneezing and yeah. you know, my eyes watering and all that sort of thing. So I guess there was a scene with the turtle. I remember that was yes. complicated. Yes. It's just a turtle. All you have to do is stick your finger up the ass of a turtle. It shouldn't be complicated, but it was. You know. Someone was doing that to make that turtle stick his head out? I don't... No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But that was also, the, you know, we had Jamie Foxx in the movie, which was kind of fun. That was also an interesting thing in casting because he was playing what was in traditional rom-com world, the lead girl's best friend. Yeah. Right? Which, Joan Cusack or whatever <laughs> at the time. You know, there would be women who would specialize in playing the best friend. And we had to find the guy equivalent of the best friend. And at one point, I almost cast Willie Garson, who was... Oh. Uh, you know him from yeah, Sex, Sex in the City. City. Yeah, he was a great guy and he gave a really good audition, but it was very standard. His profile was very standard for that. And then we said, in true Hollywood fashion, can we get somebody who is not your average, like normal white guy to play the part? Or, you know, can we get an African-American actor? Is there somebody really interesting that would be different than convention? And Jamie was on Living Color, the Fox show. He was an up and coming comedian and he did a really good job. And I think he helped make the movie just give it a little bit more personality. That scene was mostly his scene, I guess. The yeah. <laughs> mm, it's great pate, but I got a motor if I want to be ready for that party tonight. All right, let's launch into it. Let's start with hot probs. Hot probs. Because there shut are up. hot probs. <laughs> shut up. Hot probs is on. Oh, shit, yeah. There are some. It is very 90s in its feminism, which we've talked a little bit about off pod about 90s feminism being a little problematic under a modern yeah. lens. Yeah, there's so many yeah. waves of feminism. We had a bad one in the 90s. <laughs> Yeah. But it kind of subverts it in some ways, just like the fact that they are friends. I really do like that they become really good friends over the course of the movie and eventually are really supportive of each other. But yeah, just the constant self-deprecation <laughs> is rough. And I know that is Janine, but I do feel like that was pervasive in the culture too. Like it was cool to be a self-deprecating feminist. 
Yes, it was. But that was also part of Janine's whole thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, 90s feminism, feminism has, you guys know far better than I do, but it's evolved and it changes with the culture. Yeah. And also attitudes towards how you're supposed to look and how you're supposed to play out your sexuality. Those things change a lot. And they've landed in a much different place now than I think anybody could have imagined then. And so, and then there's a generally problematic thing is that the story still revolves around getting a guy, you know, I mean, it's, (laughs) it still revolves around a woman being defined in her relationships with men. Yeah. Like, well, he doesn't appreciate me for what I really am because I think he only wants a beautiful, conventionally beautiful blonde girl. And I'm not that. And I don't know. I think that is of the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's just sort of where things were. And, and the whole question of even how a woman is allowed to express her sexuality, huh. it was different then. Mm-hmm. And we, we had issues over the phone sex scene. Mm. Um, now it's, you know, very tame and kind of ridiculous. But it, it of course, super, yeah. Super <laughs> shocking to a lot of people and very difficult to make work, you know, because in mainstream culture, you weren't really supposed to be talking about things that way about any kind of frank sexual discussion with people. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but it must be tremendously dated in those regards. I mean, you tell me, what do you think well, from I, your perspective now? As a teenager watching it, like, it was speaking to me in this way that I... I loved her comedy, and I had cable when I was in high school. I watched her HBO 30-minute special. Like, a lot of her act was speaking to these... You know, like, she was very critical of Hollywood and how it treated women and not just Hollywood, but society in general. So much of women's value was tied up in, like, how you look. And it's stuff that I absorbed, too, like, as a teenager (laughs) and as a girl growing up. There was a lot of value placed on that. And I hope it's gotten better for girls today. But she was this stand-up that I found was really cool and very smart, and she just saw through all the all the bullshit, you know? <laughs> and, like, there are a couple really good moments. Like, the part where they're in the bookstore, Uma Thurman's asking this magazine quiz, like, do you feel you need to be punished for your looks? I don't need to be punished. I am punished. That's why you can't tell Brian. It's low self-esteem. Like, that was really real, I felt like. And then there's this other scene where they go to a makeup counter. Yeah. And, like, the woman at the makeup counter puts this magnified mirror on (laughs) Janine's face, and it's like... Do you see how dry and discolored you are? Do you see the irreversible sun damage? You haven't been taking care of your skin. And it's only going to get worse. Like, she gets pressured into buying a bunch of skincare products. And then she's crying in the department store with Uma Thurman, and she's like, (laughs) Men don't go around buying all this expensive crap hoping women will want them, you know? If I was a guy, I think women would be, like, lining up to go out with me. You know, and she's, like, listing off stuff like, I'm smart. I have a career. You know, like she's yeah. she's like, saying like, like if I were a man, yeah. I would be a cat. Like I I didn't totally feel like she was so. I mean, yeah, the self-deprecating and maybe like self-loathing was there, but there's also like the real like frank acknowledgement that I shouldn't have to feel this yeah. way. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have to be treated this way by society. Right. Um, like she's like I hate myself, but it's because society told me. To. Right. Yeah. She's cynical, but like I think cynicism comes from lived experience 
So that resonated with me, like, watching it as a teenager. I mean, she would just get up on stage, and she kind of wore baggy clothes, but she had this, like, cool hipstery vibe, and I found her so refreshing, like, as a young person watching her comedy. Um, And I felt like, in the context of, like, this story, this role really aligned well with the stuff that she was saying in her stand-up. 14 million eating disorders in this country. It makes me sick the way women are the victims of lookism and that high fashion just feeds into coveting and vanity and all that is evil. I will not back down on this. I don't care how unlikable it makes me seem to you. I hate it. I hate uh, models in general and oh, when even female journalists will say, Cindy Crawford, one of the bigger models, fuck you, 5'10", 120. Fuck you. I hate you. And and stop making me feel bad about the way I look about myself. Stop at TV and stop at movies. And until as women we all say no, we're not going to starve ourselves. Nothing's going to change. So we're on worst enemies a lot of the times, but I still blame men. And I won't lose the weight. I promise you this in my career. I promise you because that would be a sellout. I'm lazy too, yes, but I'm very noble as well. They have these runway shows and then they have a commentator going, a return to glamour this season. A pretty face is your best asset this season. (laughs) As opposed to last season. (laughs) When ugly girls had a free ride all the way through. When back fat was all the rage. (laughs) And by the way, I did star in the movie Back Fat, directed by Ron Howard. (laughs) But um, then Billy Baldwin signed on, they changed it, they put fire in or something. But, But I used to be the star of the movie Back Fat. I guess it's really more that it's a period piece in a lot of ways because both the characters are very much a product of their environment. The movie does a great job of showing the grass is always greener fallacy. Like I feel like you really do see Noelle's issues as well and how hard it is for her to be so underestimated all the time. You just don't see that kind of thing now where two women like that are just wallowing <laughs> in the patriarchy. It's more like, you know, let's rise above together against it it's just kind of hard now it'd be hard to show that movie to our children without having to explain a lot of stuff about the way culture was at the time right yeah yeah and that's true of everything sometimes i go back and watch 70s movies which they felt so radical and from a gender point of view and a female point of view they're all horrible towards women (laughs) i mean you know the the movies that were considered to be really forward thinking and progressive they treat women so badly as a matter of course Mm -hmm. and i watch this now and i go we didn't think that that was happening then we were not aware of that that way and my mother was a pretty staunch feminist in the 70s when i was young and pretty radical but even then you just didn't see the degree to which patriarchy has had a hold that is intense and all pervasive so in the 90s you know we're making this movie we thought oh we're making a movie that really deals with issues that are specific to women these days and we're going to express the conflicts that they have and the concerns that they have and all that sort of stuff and now you look i mean that was actually that movie was made in 96 so Mm -hmm. it's almost 30 years ago which is a pretty long time in popular culture i mean Mm -hmm. it's a really long So I'm not surprised that it really doesn't hold up. But those were concerns that were actually not being voiced in mainstream movies at the time. That's absolutely Um, true. Yeah, it definitely spoke to something that was not being said. I don't think we'd gone through a phase where 
feminism also involved being sex positive, yeah. you know? Yes. A lot of stuff happened in between then and now mm-hmm. that has changed. I'm not an expert on this. I'm just an observer, you know, but the, it seems like it's changed the way women, their discourse about themselves in relation to men has changed a lot. And you can't predict that stuff at the time, you know, in whatever time you're in, <laughs> you get so tied up in the issues that are considered significant. You can't see that there might be other issues that are more significant that are going to come to the fore when somebody makes a great observation about them. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. It is really I mean, hard it, to make a timeless movie just in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tough, especially around issues of gender, because people have a different point of view now, and they'll probably have a different point of view in 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I feel like the movie does well. It bugs me that Abby doesn't come around to this, but I feel like a lot of the movie, it's about how society saying being beautiful is all that matters has made Abby so insecure. But what the movie also shows is the conventionally beautiful woman is also very insecure because society mm-hmm. has told her that's all she is, you know? And right. I think the movie does a great job showing that. I wish Abby came around sooner. I feel like Abby is hostile and mean to Noelle a little bit. Like, well, you're beautiful, so you have everything. Even though it's so clear from the moment she meets her that like, <laughs> she has some low self-esteem where she's like, you have to have a boyfriend even if he's super shitty to you, right? <laughs> yeah. you know? That was your boyfriend? I go out with him. Thing is, he's also my manager. You pay him 10% to treat you like that. 15. Hey, he says that's normal. I don't know. Used to be sweet. What are you supposed to do? I mean, you gotta have a boyfriend, don't you? Otherwise, it's just you and a cat, and the next thing you know, 40 camels on your birthday cake. What does that mean? Oh, no. No, I didn't mean you. I didn't mean you. This is absolutely none of my business, and I will not be interfering again. You have to be validated by a man, don't you? Like, Mm -hmm. why does it take Abby so long to realize? (laughs) Maybe society saying being beautiful is all that matters is not great for anybody. Right. Right. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think we were aware of these things and we were trying to walk a line, you know, Mm -hmm. because these were all complicated things to nail down. And I was happy because Audrey was really very perceptive and these were issues for her. These were things she wanted to highlight in a conventional story, in a story that had a historical precedent, but that was towards men. And I think she was aware of a lot of this stuff. So was Janine and so was Uma, but it was hard to get it right. I I feel like, you know, I'm sure we didn't get it right most of the time, but we were trying. (laughs) Plus, we're making it for a major studio Mm. that really just wants entertainment. Yeah. And wants entertainment that's going to appeal to what they consider to be their target audience, which would be young women. It's tricky. I mean, I feel like there was a lot of truth in that script, and some of it was a little heavy-handed, and some of it is a little bit clunky because things are not so simple in real life. Yeah. And, and you know, we dealt with stupid stuff, like how far from conventionally beautiful should we make Janine Garofalo look, you know, because <laughs> she's the lead in a movie. So you want her to be sympathetic. You want people to like her and identify with her. I would have been happy to have Janine look pretty unput together or not wear makeup or never have her hair done the way it was. And, and you know, you make a movie and you yell cut and a whole team of beauty technicians comes in and starts putting makeup on, mm-hmm. on everybody's faces and putting the hair in place. And Janine would go, don't touch me. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want that. 
And then the hair and makeup people would say, but we have to make it consistent. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make you look better. I'm just trying to make sure it matches from shot to shot. There was a lot of thought put into what people were wearing and, Mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. It's really insane how, how much you can overthink these things or underthink them or fail to see something just trying to get it right. I'm sure that's true now as much as it ever was. Yeah. yeah. Well, another problem for me was that Jamie Foxx is a father of daughters, but also, like, he has this really awful attitude. <laughs> There's something off balance about her. You know, on the radio, she's confident and articulate, and then you get her in person, and she's just, I don't know, she's scatty. Oh, she's scatty? Yeah. Anybody that fine, it doesn't make any difference. Yes, it does. I'm telling you, it does. You know what your problem is, right? You're letting your brain do too much of your thing. I mean, that's just kind of the problem with his character, but that's just hard to see where he's got this daughter and then he's just telling his friend, you've got this hot lady. What does it matter what she's like? <laughs> right. But that was a little bit of the polemic in the script. Yeah. You know, that it's, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, you have to make men be wrong about all this stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's important. That, that, yeah. That, that's that consistent be... with women's looks are the most important thing. Yeah, it's just hard right. to watch. <laughs> but you know, it's funny how people are in general. I have a friend who has never had a successful relationship. And I say, there are great women that you would be good with. He goes, yeah, well, I just don't find her attractive. Mm-hmm. And I go, what is attractive? I mean, are you kidding yeah. me? I'll say to him, I say, just spend six months with that person and you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to look at her and she's going to be attractive because of who she is, not because of how she looks. Yeah. And he, he can't wrap his head around it. You know, (laughs) it's weird. I mean, sure there are women who feel that way about men too, you know, that they have to be physically attractive, but I think we all know in, in real life that it doesn't motivate that many people in their relationships. At least I'd hope not. Yeah, right. I feel like I love LA in this movie. There are a couple of movies where I like just really love seeing this side of LA, like Romeo and Michelle and mm-hmm. Venice and LA Story and, and this movie a lot. Like there's a scene where Abby goes into the elevator and in the elevator all of the women are like a foot taller than her <laughs> and like really skinny, super model-y looking and I, I had this brief period where I lived in LA after college and I had a very distinct moment like that when I went to like the coffee bean and tea leaf and I felt like (laughs) I looked so different from all of the women. I I just, there's something about it. Mm -hmm. LA is turbocharged like feelings of like Mm -hmm. insecurities, like of how you look and that elevator scene really got me too. (laughs) We were also trying to present an LA that was more like the LA that people lived in. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. that we shot in neighborhoods that at that time weren't being shot so much for a studio movie. And the script was set in San Francisco. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, which is where I grew up and where Audrey grew up. And so we wanted to set it in San Francisco, but it's expensive to shoot in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And people in San Francisco are famously assholes about having movie shot here oh um, really oh. yeah i'm in san francisco this moment so I <laughs> there, there's a big um people in the bay area hate la do you know um, about this yeah i'm sure up in seattle they hate la you know everybody hates la <laughs> and, 
and always for good reason, but people in LA don't hate anywhere else at all. <laughs> so it's always a one-sided thing. And when you try to shoot in San Francisco, which I have a lot because it's my my hometown, the people in the city are just like, we don't want you Hollywood people here and you're fucking up my parking. And you know, my parking <laughs> is more important to me than anything else in my life. And if you disrupt it for a day, you're an evil person. And so we tried to make the movie in San Francisco. I really wanted to, but it would have been millions of dollars more expensive. Oh. And so we ended up shooting in LA because at that time it was less expensive. And I thought, well, then let's create an LA that is more like the LA that people who live there might have. And LA is actually a very diverse place. So, you know, we shot a lot in Venice and on the West side because that's a slightly more romantic version of <laughs> Los Angeles. <laughs> it, whether it's realistic or not, it is realistic if you live on the West side, but with the ocean and with the kind of characters you have in Venice. But it is true that there are too many beautiful people in LA. I think we have to do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the canals in Venice too. Right. That, that was yeah. really cool. I love that area. Yeah, there's some really beautiful shots. All the outdoor yeah. shots were great. And then I really like that sort of magic hour walk that Ben and Abby take. Yeah. That's really beautiful. <laughs> they both look yeah. really we, great. <laughs> that light. Yeah. We lucked out with good weather for that. I remember the days that we shot the walk along the ocean there, because it's frequently foggy or kind of mucky. And we happened to have good days where you could see way out into the ocean and could <laughs> see Catalina and all that kind of stuff. I guess another prop, just, but I know it is for the story, but it's just, at a certain point, it's just so much harder to keep the lie up yeah. that, that it becomes unrealistic to the point of like, someone would have confessed by now rather than <laughs> take on right. these other elaborate. Right. Well, he gets covers. pretty close to getting it, I think. I mean, it's good that he knew something was up, you know. Donna, where's Abby? She's not here. No, what are you talking about? I just heard her voice. I know she's here. Right, she's not here. Here, she's in the bathroom taking a bath. It's like the Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire thing where it's like, yeah. you got to be really sure before you <laughs> throw that out there. Like, are you my ex-husband? Just, you know, like. <laughs> but that is not because it's a period piece. That's just plain, you know, it's a stupid story. And, it's <laughs> degree, you know? and we knew it at the time and it was so hard, you know. It's like, uh, come on, this guy can't be that big of an idiot. <laughs> you know, you, you you listen to people's voices and you know, need to have your eyes open to tell the difference. It, it was hard. And I think that's a very legitimate criticism of the movie. And, you know, we tried our best. There's a lot of wish fulfillment in all romantic comedies yeah. that requires a massive suspension of disbelief. And if an audience decides to go with it because they like the characters, they'll put up with a lot. And if you <laughs> take too many false steps, then the audience goes, this is bullshit. I don't even want to watch this anymore because it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, that that's a very valid criticism and I have no defense for it. <laughs> I love the like hijinksiness of like she's splashing around in the bathtub. It's Brian. He wants to talk to you. I'm going to call the whole thing off. I, I just, I thought that was so funny. I loved that, those moments. It is very compelling. I mean, there was, there was no point at which I was like, I'm out. This is too stupid. Obviously, we're doing it for the podcast anyway. But I mean, when I first watched it, I watched it in the theater too. I was very 
into the characters the whole time. That was kind of a popular thing too, like very sitcom-y tropes of (laughs) the lie going on too long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, Janine, she made up for a lot because she's so good and she can do that silly comedy well. And she has an authenticity. I mean, that helped overcome a lot of the cliches and a lot of the conventions. And Uma too, to a certain degree, her character was less interesting. And I don't know if she did as much with it. It was kind of what the necessity of the character was. Put them side by side. I think Janine is a whole lot more beautiful than Uma. But I know I always had a problem with that in the premise of the movie. It's like, well, if you were in a room with the, with the two women, I promise you, you, you would gravitate to Janine. (laughs) Yeah, who would you hit on at a party? Yeah, you'd have to be really superficial to want to hit on (laughs) Uma. She is really, she is really good in that role, but it is a little underdeveloped. There could have been more scenes with her besides just her practicing her audition. <laughs> I love her. Thank yeah. your practice. Though. Yeah. Stymied by a dense fog, rescue workers could only hear the desperate screams of the victims as their four-mile journey turned into a tragic and watery end. That was good. That was really good, but. They might want to make the carnage a little less upbeat. There was a lot that Audrey had in the original script for her that oh. I thought was really good that didn't survive, partly because it didn't work that well with Uma. Oh. Um, to some degree, you do sometimes have to rewrite for the strengths of an actor. Mm. And we were having trouble in prep and rehearsals and that sort of thing, getting some of these things to land. Sometimes actors are resistant to certain things and don't want to do them or can't make them work because they're resistant and you can't get them off of it. So you say, well, we'll revise this and write it in a way that works better. And we did a little bit of that with that character. And I personally don't think it made the movie better, Mm. but it made the movie better with the cast we had. And, you know, that stuff was also more complicated. The personalities and the things between the actors was more complicated on that movie than I ever thought it would be. (laughs) Is it true that the original script had Abby and Brian not get together? I don't remember that, but there was an ending to the script that the studio asked for that I hated. It was one of those conventional, like, they get together in public and people applaud. Oh, Oh, God. And I I refused to shoot it, and then they got really mad at me, and it was sort of like, we're going to fire you if you don't shoot it. And I said, you guys are out of your minds. Don't shut the movie down, but I promise you we're going to have to reshoot this or shoot something different because I hate this, and anybody who likes this movie is going to hate it. Yeah, And it became very contentious. And, and I believe we shot the ending with they get together in public and people applaud. And I just hated I hated it. <laughs> and finally, you know, Susan Cartsonas, who was the Fox executive, she's really good. And, you know, she had to deal with her bosses and with the studio. And she finally helped us get to shooting the ending that we have, which was a little more a little more grounded and better. <laughs> Yeah. And that was a pickup. We shot a couple days to get that. Okay. But I don't think that there was an, I don't remember. I could be wrong. This is a long time ago. It's just something I I read when I was researching, but often that's, you know, that's about 50% of the time when I read things that I'm researching, it's not true. It's just pulled out Mm -hmm. of someone's ass. (laughs) Yeah, and people have funny memories of stuff that happened. I mean, in in that case, I think it was just that we had this really cliched, awful ending that Audrey didn't like and I didn't like. And 
I can't even remember if Audrey wrote it. I think it might have been another writer who wrote it, and we were forced to shoot it. And I said, "There's no way this is going to end up in the movie," and and it didn't. You know, yeah. Okay. I didn't try to sabotage it. I shot it as well as I could. But yeah. you know, when things are not authentic and you're making a movie, it's a horrible feeling. Oh gosh, I'm sure that's a lot of time yeah. to spend on something that you're really not into. <laughs> yeah, and it happened. I mean, you know, in Hollywood, it happens all the time. Yeah. Next call. All right, let's move on to Meaningful Passages. I've already started underlining meaningful passages in her copy of Mopey Dick, if you know what I mean. There are a lot of really good lines that are really, like, you don't see in rom-coms. Like, or you def- definitely didn't at that time. My first one that I wanted to say was really liked the Heathers. We all yeah. went, ah, with the Heathers shout-out when Noelle's trying to think of a fake name and she says Madonna first. This is my friend Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> this is my friend Madonna. Hi. We were so excited about that. (laughs) (laughs) I really like their conversation when, I can't remember the leading up to it, but Abby's basically like, no one would fuck me. And then Noelle says, I'd fuck you. And she says, thank you, honey. I know you would. (laughs) I'm smart. I have a good sense of humor. I make a great living. I'd fuck you. Thank you, honey. I know you would. (laughs) That's a very realistic best friend exchange, especially for that era. You know, the movie was given an R rating because we had the word fuck in it. I said, that's nonsense. We have to fight this because the studio said, we won't release this with an R rating because in 1996 or whenever it was, they felt that if you release a rom-com with an R rating, it's dead. Mm. So Fox said, you have to take that scene out. And I said, I'm not going to take that scene out. This is a really significant line and a significant moment between these two people. I won't take it out. And they said, well, then you have to replace that line. He said, there's no replacement for this line. We didn't shoot a replacement. There's nothing to be done. So I had to go up in front of the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association, to convince them to give the movie a PG-13 rating. Wow. And I made an argument, and it was weird. It's like they made me the director. I was like the person who had to do this. And there was a screening of the movie in a theater in Beverly Hills, and there was a lawyer who represented the Motion Picture Association, and I was supposed to be the advocate for the movie. And I remember telling him, I said, the use of the word fuck is not a sexual use of the word fuck. Even though I'd fuck you is, but I said, so I had some, like, nonsense it's a signifier for the way women are treated and it's not about a sexual act yeah which is true i mean it's not nonsense it was true it's like this is an expression and the expression objectifies women and we are playing off of that expression but it's not about the sexual act it's about whether somebody's attractive or not to the opposite sex and to have it come from a woman is very significant and i won the argument we got we got a a pg-13 rating i was super happy i bragged all my friends you know i beat out a lawyer from the mpaa and then after the movie came out the head of distribution for fox called me and he goes you know we're so mad at you that you got the rating change because we've received so many complaints about the phone sex scene oh. <laughs> they got no complaints about the i'd fuck you but oh. apparently like parents around the country called fox and said we hate you people because my 
12 year old daughter saw a phone sex scene imagine like calling a movie studio <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know a woman touched herself on that <laughs> i always said well so who's making these calls right. <laughs> oh my god that's crazy yeah god, oh. god forbid a 12 year old girl see like a, oh, no. an autonomous phone sex scene in a movie right. <laughs> exactly. yeah. and it's obviously like there's nothing shown it's actually even kind of funny how awkwardly Brian takes off his pants at one point and not show anything. What's happening? What is that cheating? <laughs> yeah, well, I needed to keep PG rating. <laughs> I would shoot the scene with them suggestive enough that what's going on, but without being. Ex- I love the line where she's on the phone with, she's like, you can love your pets, but yeah. just don't love your pets. Yeah, that's it was the licking, the David oh, Ross the licking, licking for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I like your skincare regime. Is it your, the regime from which the radicals <laughs> yes, are trying to yes. free? We also have this new face cream, which neutralizes the free radicals that attack the skin. Mm. Let me ask you, what's your skin regime? My regime. Mm-hmm. The regime from which the radicals are trying to get free. Are we selling face cream or staging a coup? That's another <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> and then I, I love when Noelle shows up with the new violin bow when she's yes. like oh, yeah. explaining, I put all this time into trying to find just the right one for you. And she's like, just give me some time and I'll upgrade your bow. Did you know violin bows were like cars? Meaning? Well, they go from your basic low-end bows, something like a Geo or a Hyundai, which I personally drive, all the way to your high-performance Porsche-like bows, which play like the devil. I, um, I got you this, uh, well, it's like a, like a Toyota, which was, um, all I could afford. Oh, thank you. Just give me some time and I'll upgrade your bow. I thought that was so good. It was really good (laughs) characterization. I mean, that scene passes the Bechdel test, first of all. That's because the rest of the movie is about chasing a guy, but that's really perfect. And then also, you know, people think she's dumb, but it's a really clever analogy (laughs) that she comes up with. Yeah. And she's really putting a lot of thought into it, you know, compared to her budgetary constraints. On how to make it up to this woman. It's an act of genuine kindness and gratitude from one woman to another. It was just lovely. I really, yeah. really love that. There's also like a, a moment where Brian asks them out for a drink and so they both meet him at a bar and Noelle goes to the bathroom and Abby's supposed to like straighten things out with who is who <laughs> and she's talking about her goats and there's there's this <laughs> Her mo- lie is just goes there's so deep. What do you do, Donna? Do you work at radio station? I make cheese. Cheese? Yeah. Really, I've, I've never met a cheese maker before. So what, what sort? Goat cheese. Oh, that's the, the stuff that smells of vomit. No, that's Parmesan. Yeah, of course. Mine's more of a fromage, really. Um, and it comes from the south of France, the Pyrenees, where I have acquired a number of goats through a freakish inheritance. And uh, occasionally I take trips out there, and sometimes Abby accompanies me to check on the general health and well-being of my goats. Really? Yeah. There's also (laughs) this moment that I just noticed, like, she tells Brian you have something in your eyebrow or something, and she just kind of picks it out for her. I thought that was an interesting moment of intimacy, like, Mm -hmm. that they have in that one little scene. 
But yeah, like the goats. That was just a really funny scene, and she spills the salsa on her shirt. And... Yeah. Of course. Of course, I would do that. It's just like yeah. those moments, like watching embarrassment on screen. And I really love watching that, but I also have like secondhand embarrassment watching it, you know? I guess I have a like, tangential question too. So in Heather's, Heather looks around and to make up a fake name, she looks at her bird and says Tweety. And then Abby's looking around and she sees the cheese plate. Is that a Michael Lehman's trademark? Look no. around and find a lie? <laughs> no, it's, it's random. You know? <laughs> I think both of those things were scripted. So it's okay. a trademark for me to like writers who come up with that. Yeah. <laughs> It's really funny how deep she goes with it though like she doesn't try to change the subject she's just like let me imagine yeah, this whole me, life as yeah. myself as a goat cheese a goat, goat bird in <laughs> i love brian's like oh that's the stuff that smells like vomit or whatever yeah. i don't know i just <laughs> thought it was really funny <laughs> well audrey was really 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 a great writer she was very bright and she had a really good sense of humor so that stuff is all written pretty much as it is in the movie and Janine was particularly well suited to doing that stuff. It's funny because in the making of the movie, those were the easy scenes to shoot because <laughs> Janine was so good and because the writing was so good. That's what happens. I like Abby's line, rejection kills, disappointment only maims. <laughs> yeah. like, I felt like that was a very yeah. Janine Garofalo line. <laughs> I really like yeah. when the thing first happens, but she's like, okay, I was supposed to go on a date with him and you have to pretend to be me. You have to know that there's a guy out there and I'm supposed to have a date with him and that this is his dog and I just want you to be me when he comes in here, okay? <laughs> well, has like no follow-up questions. She's like, okay, <laughs> I'm happy. I love that. She just rolls with it. She wants to be helpful. I like the world. Yeah. She is great. I really love the bike stunt with a guy who checks out Noel and then rolls over the hood of the car. That was a big laugh out loud chuckle for me. It's a really yeah, good stunt. That, that was a learning thing for me as a director <laughs> because it was scripted and the stunt was really well executed. And I remember saying, this is too silly. You know, it's too obvious. And I cut it out of a version of the movie. Mm. And then Fox was putting together trailers of the film and they put that shot in the trailer because they have access to all the footage. Yeah. <laughs> and it always got a huge laugh in the trailer. And I said, I'm an idiot. This is funny. When you see somebody crash on a bicycle, it's funny and it's funny in context. And I put it back in. It is one of the biggest laughs. Back in the days when you'd see the movie in the theater, that always got a huge laugh. And I realized nothing trumps a physical comedy moment you know right. it doesn't matter how kind of you all will come on that's sort of obvious but that bicyclist i remember he could just do it over and over again <laughs> i mean you can tell he's not hurt is why it's funny if it like if it looked like he was badly injured it would not be good and there is a world in which that doesn't land but you shot it perfectly it absolutely yeah, works it great. <laughs> I, I loved the bee the guy in the cafe yes. that goes through <laughs> all this, like, making sure the bee's dead. Bing, bing. Ah, ah. I'll give it. Hey! Hey! It's dead. No kidding. Killed it. He certainly did. You're gonna be all right now, so... She's fine. We're fine. Everybody's fine, right? Great, thank you. Thank you. 
you. And he's like, Got it. you're going to be all right now. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It was hilarious. Yeah, he, he was funny. And once again, that was scripted. Audrey scripted it just that way. Okay. Oh, yeah. I love, uh, I mean, it's like Cyrano. I feel like it's from the play, but she throws something down to him. When he asks just, for, he's like, give me something you've been wearing. We were, like, we were all like, like what? Like, underwear. <laughs> he's yeah. like, wow. It's a kid. That's yeah, so yeah. 90s. It was really hilarious. And then I think you mentioned it before we were in Meaningful Passages, Amy, but the line about, I don't, or was it you, Christina? I don't eat anything, so inside I'm nothing. Like, I am what I eat, but I don't eat anything. Are you going to eat that? I don't eat. You don't eat. You ordered it. I love to order. I love menus, but I got to keep the calories down. God, how can you live like that? I know. Do you believe you are what you eat? I guess. See, that's what scares me. I don't need anything so I can look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's nothing. <laughs> so poignant. Not really funny, but very poignant right. and really well delivered. Yeah. And that made the uh, the scene where Brian's feeding her cake, like, mm-hmm. that is such a seduction moment <laughs> to Noelle because she doesn't eat cake or eat anything. And like... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I hope you like sweets, because that's all it is. I don't eat that stuff. I order it, but I can't eat it. Of course you can. You just you take it one bite at a time, and it, and it all goes down. No. Oh, really? Mm. Is that nice? as a way to get her involved because she really isn't interested in Brian at all mm-hmm. before that. You can tell that she really does mean to clear everything up and then she just gets, I mean, she must be just so hungry all the time. Right. She right. gets distracted <laughs> and and he's also like taking care of her. Obviously her boyfriend is not nurturing in any way. So I feel like that really sells how she kind of gets caught up in it. Yeah. It's really well done. <laughs> Any other meaningful passages? Oh, wait, I have one more. Christina, just when we were starting the movie and on the DVD menu, the dog on roller skates is there. <laughs> Christina said, oh, the dog on roller skates. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I yeah, that was cute. I always like that. <laughs> He's a very cute dog. Oh, I was wondering about the cat, actually, because you didn't mention the cat. Did the cat work okay, or? The cat made an unexpectedly fantastic performance because cats <laughs> cats are impossible they yeah. don't do anything but that cat just like purred and was just where it needed to be yeah the cat was good that's the great cat did well it yeah. seemed like janine and the cat bonded pretty well <laughs> they, they did but you know the cat didn't have to do as much as the dog because right. cat on roller skates not gonna happen <laughs> that would be the most unrealistic thing in the world if there was a cat that was being obedient and <laughs> yeah. would be like this is not tracking at all oh i like in the end where she's like about the night on the phone i'm pregnant and like and he's like are you sure it was me and she's like i don't know i made a lot of calls that night yeah <laughs> that's a really I good that, line I to end that on last line. Yeah. yeah it was great like it almost doesn't work until that closing line yeah it's like the pause is really great <laughs> that night on the phone yeah i'm pregnant Darling. 
Actually, I don't know. I made a lot of calls that night. Oh, and I love the phone call, like, with the tuna sandwich. And she's oh, like, yeah. I'm emphatically anti-pickle. <laughs> and then he starts taking off the pickles. Yes, yes. As if, not like, there, yeah, right? she doesn't know, yeah. <laughs> That's going to be a point of contention in the relationship, I can tell. And that was Audrey, too. That was in the script. Is that how she likes yeah. to have a tuna sandwich? <laughs> I, th- I think so, yeah. yeah. But that was that was very much in the script. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have strong feelings about tuna? Yeah, you know, most of my life I wouldn't eat a tuna sandwich. I thought they were disgusting. And then I kind of learned how to like them. But I haven't had one in a while. And, and I would be pro-pickle. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love yeah. pickles. I love all pickles. Any and all pickles. <laughs> I'd have to disagree with Abby on that. What else does a suicide need, huh? Now, if you'll excuse me. So this is what's called a lunchtime poll. So today's lunchtime poll is tell about a time when you told a little lie and it got out of control. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know which one we decided. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, that's a tough one. I have strong feelings about this because I believe that one should never, ever tell even those little white lies that we all do tell i believe that in reality it's never better so you know yeah. somebody's the classic do i look fat in this dress you're supposed to say tactfully well maybe you can find something more flattering maybe you don't want to say yes you look fat or whatever it is yeah. that these, these sorts of things what comes to mind i try really hard not to do these lies so i couldn't <laughs> really think of a great thing but in hollywood People are always lying about how they feel about people's work and what they've seen and that sort of thing. So I remembered when I started thinking about this that I had a phone conversation with Kevin Williamson, right? Do you know who he is? And and I can't remember what it was about, whether we were talking to him about an actor or whether he had a script that he wanted to send me or whatever it was, but I'd never met him. And we're talking and he says to me, Famously, you know how I feel about Heather's and what it meant to me. And I had no fucking I had no idea. So I get yes, absolutely. Because he said it like as if I must have seen every interview that was ever made with him. <laughs> and I said yes. And he made some reference to teaching Mrs. Tingle. Mm-hmm. I knew that the movie was made, but I'd never seen it. And he asked whether I'd seen it. And I said, yes, of course I've seen it. <laughs> But then he asked me something specific, and I can't remember what it was because I've never seen the movie, and I was like, uh. So this is a typical Hollywood thing where you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings by saying you actually haven't seen every interview they've ever done, nor have you seen every movie or television show they've ever done, and you get buried very quickly. So, I mean, I could probably come up with 20 examples of that, but I thought the Kevin <laughs> Williamson one was funny because he's a nice guy. And when somebody says, you know how meaningful this thing that you did <laughs> is to me, I'm like, no, I, ha- I don't have a clue. Um, famously. 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 My feelings on this are and famous. I, and it's like, no, you know, Kevin, he was a very successful writer. I'm usually not reading interviews with people in Hollywood. <laughs> You have director things things to do. do. (laughs) Yeah, I have other things to do with my time. But there's also a reverse story of this that's kind of interesting that does relate to the whole Heather's universe also, is that I was trying to put together a movie. I don't think it was Truth About Cats and Dogs, but I can't remember what it was. But Christian came up as a possible actor for it. It could have been Cats and Dogs. And (laughs) I hadn't talked to Christian in a number of years. And I said, I don't have a current phone number for him. 
And my producer said, well, the only way you're going to get him to read this is to talk to him personally because he's right now not reading scripts or whatever. So I called his agent and I said, how do I get Christian to read this? And the agent said, you have to ask him directly. I said, I don't have his phone number anymore. Can you give me his phone number? And the agent was like, Christian's going through some weird stuff these days and I can't give out his phone number. And I said, dude, I said, I directed this guy in a movie that was pretty significant for him. And I always got along with him. He's a super nice guy. I said, give me his number. And the agent said, okay, I will give you his number, but you have to promise me that you won't tell him where you got this number. (laughs) So I am a terrible liar. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I have a hard time coming up with a really good example of telling one of these lies because I can't tell lies very well. I just can't do it. I don't know how to do it. (laughs) It's obvious when I'm lying. I can't hide it. So I called Christian and I had a very nice conversation with him and he was really friendly and he didn't seem in any way, there was no problem, but he wasn't going to do the movie. I think he might have said, I'll read the script, but this is not something I want to do. So expect to know or whatever, whatever (laughs) polite thing he said. And right before we were going to hang up, he said, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He goes, where'd you get my number? (laughs) And I said, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't look around the room. You know, like my cheesemonger. And so as a terrible liar, I didn't lie. And I said, I got it from your agent. He said, okay, hang up the phone. A day or two later, I get this furious call from the agent. You motherfucker, how could you, I, you promised me that you wouldn't, how could you do this to me? You have caused me such horrible, it, oh, wow. that agent hated me for good reason because I wouldn't lie on his behalf because I couldn't. Yeah. So I'm a shitty liar and I tell the truth at the wrong time. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, oh, that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> that's a tough position to be in. Like, right. don't tell, and then you get asked directly. Right. Like, right. That's why because they said I, don't it, tell it, it didn't, I couldn't possibly have imagined that if I had a decent conversation with Christian that he would want to know where I got his number. Right. <laughs> but there must have been something going on in his life at the time where for some reason he didn't want his number given out. Even to me, I mean, it was a benign question on my part, I thought, but who knows? I, you know, I never asked Christian about that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay away from all that stuff. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll go. Okay, go ahead. Um, I'm not going to do the thing I said. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I had a secret jokey answer, but... So this was, this was like almost 30 years ago, and I was like briefly in therapy for... I don't know why this even came up, because I was just having problems with anxiety attacks, and that's why I was in therapy and he asked me one time like did you ever read I thought he said the road not taken (laughs) whatever it was he said I thought he just meant like that poem you know like in it in the wood and the thing the rubber frost yes (laughs) that's what I thought he was talking about yeah sure I read that right and then he's like oh well okay so you know the part where he's talking about this and this you know and then really it was like some self-help book that was popular at the time and that's what he was Mm. referencing and i don't know why i didn't just right then say oh i thought you meant something else i'm not familiar with this book and then it was like he brought that up like every session i'm like oh yeah like i remember that part like my takeaway i 
don't know. It's a seminal book for him. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and I don't know why he was bringing it up because I feel like it was about career stuff or something. And I was just there for, I was having such a problem with anxiety. It's, I don't know what it had to do with anything, but mm. like it came up <laughs> several times. <laughs> like, you know, that book that we both read. Yeah. <laughs> that mm-hmm. really funny. Like, I feel uh-huh. like when someone likes a self-help book, it almost becomes cultish when they're like, everyone needs to read this so yeah. to understand it the way I understand it. I've probably literally <laughs> never read one, I don't think. Or did he write it? Maybe he wrote it. No. I remember the name of the author. but Well, I mean, yeah. I don't remember the name of the therapist, but it was different. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of have two. The first one that I thought of right away was I lived in London for a little while in my early 20s. And, you know, when you live in, especially in a UK place, like you sort of start to talk like them inadvertently. And sometimes it's just to be understood. Like you say something with a hard R and they're like, I don't know what you're saying. And then you have to repeat it in a British way. So I kind of became accustomed to doing that. And I was in a really loud club and this guy was hitting on me. He said, your accent is really interesting. Where are you from? And for some reason, I said Milton Keynes, which was like a place in England that I had just been. And then he had so many follow-up questions. And then I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. And then I left the club. (laughs) But then the other one I just thought of this morning was that my mom gifted, my mom gave me stuff all the time, just so much stuff. And if I kept everything she gave me, I would be living in a junkyard right now. So I would just try to purge things. And then there would often be follow-up questions, but she gave me a Vitamix and I didn't really know at the time what a big gift that was. Oh, yeah. I thought it was just like a blender. <laughs> and it, something happened and it broke. And apparently they have lifetime warranties, but I didn't know that. Uh-oh. Take it to Goodwill and got a new blender. And so she was visiting and was like, where's the Vitamix? I want to make a smoothie. <laughs> and I don't know if it would have been better to tell the truth or not in that case. Because right. <laughs> know what I know now about how expensive those things are. But I told her I'd lent it to my friend, Stephen Justin. <laughs> and, and then that became like a decade-long lie of like, the blender is still at Stephen Justin's house. <laughs> they just really love making margaritas. <laughs> Does she know now? She's passed away, so I'm in the clear. Oh. She never okay. learned. <laughs> she never learned. No. Wow. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a good one. (laughs) I don't really... Okay, I'm very bad at lying. I have a hard time being convincing, I guess, when I try to... (laughs) But anyways, when I first moved out to Seattle, I really wanted to meet people. I didn't really know anybody here, but I think I've done like a lot of activities that I really don't enjoy. Like I did three seasons of dodgeball. (laughs) Maybe it's like a lying to myself thing or something, but it was just like, why am I doing this? <laughs> but at the time, I was like, this is great, you know? I don't know. But anyways, that's kind of like a lying to myself one, maybe. That you're really <laughs> into dodgeball when you're not at all. Right, <laughs> like I've pretended to be into things, like yeah. when I'm clearly not into them. And it gets to this point where I'm just like, I can't pretend anymore. <laughs> anyways. How very... I do have one Heather's question, just as sort of a companion piece to our Daniel Waters interview, because we talked about the Curtin Ram scene and how that was a little confusing about whether or not Veronica knows what's really happening. And he said that in the script, he wrote it as a real quick thing. And then it became this 
chase scene through the woods. So I was wondering what your perspective on that was. Yeah, that's complicated because he may have written it as a quick thing in an earlier draft, but I don't remember making a much bigger deal out of the chase through the woods than was scripted. Hmm. But it's possible that we thought, well, this is an opportunity to put a little bit of a you know visual sequence in the movie just to extend that moment. And it could have also been just connected to all the stuff about the cops coming there and having to chase, just (laughs) doing more of a chase out of the whole thing. But to me, it was always the question for Dan was like, well, when he says Ich Luga bullets, (laughs) are we supposed to expect that she believes this or is she choosing to play along knowing full well there's nothing like that? (laughs) And to me, it's an interesting thing that Veronica has been so seduced by this lunatic that she's willing to go along and will say the lie to herself, you know, and that reflexively she raises the gun and shoots. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know what you're doing at that point, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) I mean, I like the fact that you think maybe she knows more than she's willing to cop to because she's so wrapped up in this whole endeavor. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? I thought it was interesting that you would say, eh, she's not that naive. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, she's obviously very smart. <laughs> yes, she's going to have to send her SATs to San Quentin instead of Stanford, but she's a smart lady. But yeah, I don't know. I guess right. it is. It's just a fun question. I like that it's ambiguous, yeah. too. I mean, they have that argument in the car after where he's like, you, you believed it because you wanted to believe it. Yes. And they hit back yeah. and forth. And I think he is totally right. I have yeah. to side with and him on that. Did too. <laughs> yeah, did not, did too. But doesn't he say now, right before she shoots the guy? Yeah. 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 Yes. So that was also interesting to me too. I'm sure that that was scripted that way. You know, yeah. that she's just sort of responding to him in the heat of the moment. Right. You know. He's very charming. <laughs> Do you guys have any other <laughs> questions, Heathers or Cats and Dogs, otherwise? Um, I don't think so. No, I feel like I covered all the stuff I wanted to bring up. This was so great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Do you have any projects you want to promote or anything you want to plug? No, I mean, I'm always working on stuff, but, you know, I'm not a good promoter. (laughs) If you ever see anything that I've directed, then I want you to be happy. That's, that's. Uh (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. That's all the promotion I'm going to (laughs) do. Well, you've definitely contributed to our lives in a really wonderful and significant way. So thank you so much for that. Well, thanks for saying that. I love the title of your podcast. (laughs) It's it's just great. Dan must have been very appreciative of the fact that you called your podcast Peyton Pew. Oh, we had such a lovely conversation. Yeah. That was like, He is the funniest person you're ever going to talk to. Yeah. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. So. Uh, thank you, guys. If you enjoyed this episode of Paid in Puke, please take a minute to give us five stars on your preferred podcast app. If you did not enjoy it, no further action is necessary. Paid in Puke is hosted by Jessica Baxter, Amy Green, and Christina Barr. Follow us on Twitter at Paid in Puke Pod, on Blue Sky at Paid in Puke Pod, on Instagram at Paid in Puke Seattle and on Facebook at Paid in Puke Podcast. Paid in Puke is produced and edited by Divine Betty Media. Music by Silent Partner and Jessica Baxter. Thanks for listening. You're beautiful. Lick it up, baby. Lick. <laughs>